This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Wealthana. I'm your host, Andrew Brill. And with each release of economic data, the market goes on a wild ride. And of course, it takes us with us. And Warren Buffett dumped some Apple stock. And we'll get into that and a lot more right now. Our mission here at Wealthion is to help all of us keep and grow our money through interviews with our experts like the one I'm about to introduce you to. We'll break down economic trends, markets, and investments. But Wealthion is not just a channel. It's a conversation with our community. So please keep the feedback coming. If there's something you'd like us to talk about or someone you'd like to hear from, let us know. And if you could like and subscribe to the channel, we would really appreciate it. Now let's dive into discussion. I'd like to welcome the chief market strategist for Slatestone Wealth, the managing partner at Case Capital, and my friend, Kenny Polcari to the show. Kenny, how are you doing? I am great, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And uh, I'd be a lot better if we weren't on this roller coaster ride. But it seems that with any economic data that comes out, of course, the economic data Tuesday that sent the market down, the economic data Wednesday that sent the market up, and then the economic data from Friday, of course, that said that inflation is still alive and well. So it's it talk to us about the numbers and what they all mean. So it, yeah. So you have to take a step back, right, and look at the numbers from who you are in terms of who, who you are in this conversation. Are you a long-term investor? Are you a day trader? Are you someone who's just getting started? Are you someone, you know, that's that's getting closer to the end? And so all that's going to play a role in maybe how you interpret the data and then what it really means to you and how nervous or not nervous that you should become. But one way or the other, uh, as we know, and we've been talking about this ad nauseum now for a couple of years, is monetary policy and Fed policy and what's the Fed going to do? They're going to lower rates, they're going to raise rates, what's inflation doing? It's up, it's down. Um, and so all that plays a role into kind of not only the data, but how people interpret the data. So on Wednesday, you know, we had a we had a slightly hotter CPI. And I say slightly because uh, it was up by one, you know, it was it was it was hotter by one tenth of a percent. It wasn't dramatic. It was just slightly hotter. But uh, considering that, you know, we 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 inflation went all the way up to nine and a half percent, you know, in, in uh, 2023 and then been on its way down. And so, you know, we're back to this three point four percent range, which is, you know, certainly down where it was, but higher than where they want it to be. So any move in the CPI and inflation and price data is going to cause people to react. And really what it's going to cause in the market today, and we could talk about this too, is it's going to cause the algorithms to react. And sometimes the algorithms overreact, which in my opinion, I think they do a lot of the time. Uh, but they're meant to they're meant to trade, right? Algorithms are meant to trade. They're not meant for the long-term investor. They create a lot of chaos. They create a lot of noise. And that's really what we saw on Tuesday, right? We saw the markets uh, uh, pull back dramatically. Although you say dramatically because, you know, you go, oh my God, the Dow is down 800 points. But in fact, it was down 1.8%. You know, when you think about where the Dow has been over the last 12 months or 18 months, down 1.8% is 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 really not dramatic at all, right? Um, yet, when the market does nothing but march higher every day, and then suddenly, you know, it's off 1.8, or NASDAQ was off 2.25%, the small caps are off 4%, 4%. Those were more dramatic numbers, right? The NASDAQ and the small caps. But 
broadly, we saw the, the S&P and the Dow pull back on Tuesday. And then by Thursday, they were right back up kissing the highs again as if, you know, OK, we got that data. We interpreted it. We got it. No problem. We're OK. And then we get hit with another uh, hot number on Friday with the PPI, right, which is the producer price level. Now, what's interesting about this number is the producer price level is really a leading indicator. People need to understand that, that the producer price level tells you what producers are paying to manufacture product at the producer level. Well, if the producers are starting to manufacture the product and they're paying up, those higher prices ultimately work their way down into the consumer price level in about four to five weeks. So what's interesting is that on Tuesday, we had January's uh, CPI, which was already slightly elevated. Now we got the January PPI, which is now again more elevated. Uh, and so that suggests that next month's CPI is going to then be elevated once again. And so that's causing the consternation in the markets. Uh, we see the markets pull back. They're going to revalue based on, okay, what's the new narrative going to be in terms of what the Fed's going to do? Are they going to lower rates? They're not going to lower rates. They're going to hold them longer. Are they potentially going to go higher from here? I don't think they're going to go higher from here, but I think they're going to be held longer for sure. I don't think this this narrative of a March or May rate cut, I think that's out the window. And in there, we actually got the retail sales numbers, which were coming down as that they adjusted the retail sales numbers for the last two months and retail sales numbers for January were also down. So it shows as prices are going up, people are actually spending less money. Well, because and that makes perfect sense because stuff is more expensive. So people now are buying, they're buying less of what they want and more of what they need, right? Because you have to prioritize, especially when prices are going up. People need things to live versus they want things. So they're so they're pulling back on the wants and they're putting more money to the need. So yes, to your point, um, that slowdown in retail spending is is that's a negative. But what it tells you is that consumers are starting to feel the pressure of these ongoing high prices. Um, and so that's that that's just a negative perception, right? Explain to me how that all works, because we're seeing the, the PPI, we're seeing the production side go up, we're seeing the consumer side go up, we're seeing spending go down, which is exactly, I think, what the Fed wants. There's a little bit less money circulating, but, Correct. Uh, but we're, we're, there's still the inflation numbers are still rising. Well, and so that's what the Fed doesn't want, right? They want to see the consumer pull back. Yes, they do. But they don't want to see inflation start to turn up again because you know you, you may not remember this if you were you were probably in high school but when this happened the last time uh you know in 19, 1979 1980 1981 when when inflation kind of took off and then they then they got it under control or they thought they got it under control the fed at the time cut rates prematurely and then inflation reared its ugly head again uh and then they lost control of it and that's when paul volcker who was fed chairman at the time had to jam rates to 20 percent right to, to kill they killed the economy for two years put us in a, a deep dark recession for two years but they ultimately collapsed uh, uh inflation but it took that and so today what the fed is really sensitive to is if they prematurely cut rates and then it ignites uh inflation because remember cutting rates is actually stimulative to the economy right low lower cost of money lets people say okay well, i can afford this now it's not going to cost you so it creates demand and, and it stimulates the, by all accounts, 
The economy doesn't need to be stimulated. Notice what the other data is saying. Jobs remain strong. Unemployment is at historic lows. PMIs, which is the Purchasing Managers Indexes, those are eco data points that continue to remain in expansionary territory versus contractionary. So those are all things that suggest the economy is functioning just fine with five and a quarter percent rates. And so therefore, there is no real data point that's saying, okay, you have to cut. We're not circling the drain. The economy is not going down the drain. This is not a 2008 scenario by any stretch at all, um, which is why it's confusing, right? Because the Fed's trying to stay the course. Um, and I think they will. I think the Fed will not cut rates and they're going to hold them here. I don't think they're going to go up. I don't think they're going to cut them at all. And I think they're going to hold them here. Look, if CPI and PPI continue to go up, next month, and then the month after that, the month after that, then the conversation about could the Fed hike rates is absolutely back on the table. I don't think we're there yet, and I think they're just going to hold them right here. That was going to be my question. Is there a point where you expect uh, the PPI and CPI to start coming down with consumer spending? Yeah, so yes. So then I would suspect if, if, if we see the drop in retail spending again, that would suggest that consumers are tiring, they're exhausting. And so they're, so they're not going out, demand should fall, and then prices should once again start to come down. I don't think we're going to probably see a couple of months of uh, where inflation ticks up a little bit, like we saw in January. I think it's going to happen again in February. But then I think it's going to get stuck there kind of in the mid threes. You know, right now, I think we're at 3.4%. Uh, X food and energy. Um, I think it's going to stay between, you know, say 3.4 and and 3.8 percent. I think that's where it's going to get stuck. And this two percent target that the Fed uh, that the Fed has in mind, the one that they keep talking about, I think it's going to be more difficult to achieve, which is what's going to force them to keep rates higher for longer. As much as they want to, you know, the the market is demanding, almost stamping their feet. You know, you have to cut rates. You have to cut rates. They don't have to cut rates, and the, and the sooner you know that that people recognize that you know cutting rates would be a negative because it'll be stimulative and it'll reignite inflation, and then they'll, it'll be a repeat of 1980 where they have to force them really higher. They'll bring the, the economy into a darker recession. Uh, equities will fall in price fairly dramatically, in my opinion, if they have to do that. Do you see equity prices falling? I mean, the, the, the markets are at highs anyway. I know in your yes. article you say, yeah, there's a pullback coming. The, yes. You, you know, you, you clearly mentioned the, the the blip on the radar that it was this week. It, it dropped 1.8%. I know we have the brakes in place for that 7% with that cooling off period. Right. That seems right. like a, a long way to get there. Maybe they have to adjust that number too. Yeah, but well, the the the, the breaks that you talk about, the the circuit breakers, that's if the market falls seven percent in one day, right? Right. But the market could fall seven percent over a period of weeks, and those circuit breakers are not. Those circuit breakers are only if it happens during a single trading session, right? But do I honestly think I would like to think? And I said this today in my note. I said it actually on TV this morning. I was on with Stuart Varney on Fox Business. Um, that I would love to see the market pull back like five to eight percent, shake the branches a little bit, because I think the market got well ahead of itself. There was this narrative that was created in uh, the end of October, November, and December that uh, after the after the November Fed meeting, when when Jay Powell suggested that the thinking in the Fed is now you know for potential rate cuts in 2024, you know he 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 signaled. Uh, that the that the that the dot plot that the Fed creates suggested a maximum of three potential rate cuts could have happened. Well, three went from six to seven, 
the market suddenly was talking about six to seven rate cuts in 2024. Well, think about how ridiculous that is, just first of all, on its on the face of it. That that the Fed, you know, took it, they they waited too long on the front end, inflation got out of control, then they had to raise rates, right? And then they brought inflation down, and now they're getting it to a level where, by the way, and you and I both know this, 5% on federal funds is actually normal, right? If you go back and look in history over time, five between four and six percent is very normal. These these zero to two percent rates that we had for the last 15 years during the crisis was not normal. But there's a whole generation of people, let's call them the millennials, that came into this <laughs> business when 2007 was happening. And for 15 years, all they know is zero interest rates. It's not their fault. They don't know anything other than zero interest rates. So to them, 5% is, oh, my God, these are astronomical. Dude, let me tell you, my first mortgage was 15 and a half percent in 1983. Today, you know, they're pushing, okay, so they're seven and a half percent. Okay, but for 15 years, they were two percent. Right. Which wasn't normal either. I'm not saying 15 and a half percent was normal. It was not, but neither was two and a half percent. You know, rates in here are right where they've been historically. So, so I don't know how that narrative changed in this November and December that there were going to be not only multiple, but there were going to be five and six and seven potential rate cuts starting in March and then going every Fed meeting till the end of the year. Well, here's the other issue. You know, here's another data point that everyone should know. It's a presidential election year. The Fed, the Fed is not supposed to move on rates in either direction within a six month window of the election. So the election in November. By May, if they're going to make a move, they got to do it by May. If they don't do it by May, they should not do it until after the election for fear of being seen as political, right? In either direction. They can't move them up. They're not supposed to move them up, nor move them down. And so this idea that there were going to be seven rate cuts in 2024 or six rate cuts starting in March and going every meeting was illogical to begin with. Was illogical to begin with. And so what we've seen now in the market from the data points um, is that is that that's most likely not going to happen. The Fed, by the way, over the last six weeks, since the first of the year, has been very, very specific. Jay Powell has been pushing back on this idea that there were going to be multiple. It, that, that, that conversation didn't come from him. And even the three potential rate cuts, all he all he suggested was that the thinking by some members of the Fed was that we could see up to three. He never said the Fed is going to cut three. He just said the thinking is kind of going there. All that means is we're discussing it. And it turned from the thinking is going there till we're getting seven and they took the market up. Look, they took the NASDAQ up 30% in from, from October 31st until December 31st, till December 31st right? So in, in, eight, in eight weeks, they took the NASDAQ up 30%. They took S&P up 20%. It's ridiculous. And so for somebody to say, you know, the, the, if, the, if the NASDAQ backs off three or four percent, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. It is so not the end of the world. Actually, actually, the other thing people should know is that if the market trades, you know, within from zero to nine percent is very much considered a normal trading pattern for the market. So we could see if the NASDAQ backed off nine percent, that's not even in correction territory yet. That's still within the normal trading band. So people need to understand that, right? I would love to see, as a long-term investor, I'm not a day trader. I'm a long-term investor. I'm a wealth manager. I build long-term portfolios, right? I'm not day trading. But I would love to see the market back off 5 6 or 7%. Because it, we've got a lot of cash just waiting. 
I'm not, I'm not chasing stocks at the high. Certainly not chasing tech up here. We own it. I'm not chasing it. But I'd love a chance to get to buy more tech, but I want to see it back off. And a 1.8% pullback is not a pullback. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Five, six, seven percent would be something much more exciting. So it, if the market, you would suggest if people, if, the, if it does go down five, six, jump in. Jump uh, in. Listen, again, again, yes, I would say jump in. I'm very prepared to jump in. I know, you know, a lot of wealth managers in the business, everyone's waiting for this pullback, right? Um, and everyone's got plenty of money to put to work. But here's the deal. And I often, you, you know, it's very funny about that because you know, when the market starts to get antsy and it sells off, people get nervous because it's their money. And they go, oh my God, I'm going to lose my money. Okay, first of all, you have to decide what money is it. Is it retirement money that you can't touch for 30 years anyway? So A, what are you worried about? B, what's funny is, and I use this, I use this all the time because it really, it, it speaks to the point. When Bloomingdale's has a sale, Women run in there and they buy three dresses because they're on sale for 30%. How could you leave it on the rack? They have to buy it. But Apple goes down, Apple goes down 10%. Everyone goes, oh my God, I got to sell my Apple because <laughs> it's down 10%. No, 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 no. That's the wrong thinking. If you're a long-term investor, that's when you need to buy more Apple. Now, listen, let's qualify that. Has the fundamental story changed in that stock? Is that why it's selling off? Because if the fundamental story changes, then it's a new, then it's a different conversation. If if the stocks I own, if the fundamental story is intact, but the market broadly sells off and all these good names that I own, IBM and Apple and Amazon and Bank America and Verizon, if they back off, am I panicking? Absolutely not. Now, did the story change in IBM? Is there suddenly their, their product? I don't know, it's no good, no one's buying it. That's a fundamental shift, and that might that's gonna make me change my mind. But if that doesn't happen, why am I panicking? I own all these big names in the industries that I want to be in. These, these are the these are the motherships in all the, the different sectors. Why am I panicking? Right? I'm still young. I mean, I'm 62, but um, I'm not. You know, this isn't money I need tomorrow. I probably got another I don't know 20 years. Right? That's you, you're even younger than me. You've got plenty of time on your side. And the other thing people need to understand is time is the most important factor in this as an investor, as a long-term investor. Look, if you're day trading, you want the chaos and the noise and you want the stocks go up and down because you want to hit the buy and sell buttons all day long. But if you're a long-term investor, that's not what you want at all, right? Absolutely. But Kenny, a lot of our viewers are older. They're, they are retired or right. getting right there at retirement age. They don't have that time to wait. Where do they go? What do they do? So listen, if it's so, those are those are the clients I talk to all day long, right? Those are people that I talk to all day long. So they need to have a strong, well-diversified portfolio. They have to, again, decide, is this money that they're living on or is this money that they're leaving to their grandchildren? Because here's the other point. If you're 60 or 70 years old and you've got plenty of money for yourself and you're not worried about it, but you still have all this other money that you're going to leave to a generation or two generations behind you, once again, guess what's on your time? What's, what's on your side is time. So that money can be more aggressive. But if you're talking about your own money that you need to live on, then you need to, you know, that needs to be, that needs to be sacred, right? So it needs to be uh, in high quality names. If you're going to have market exposure, you need to be in high quality names, a dividend paying portfolio that's going to spin off an income without you having to touch your principal. That'll last forever. You need to have, certainly have some bond exposure in there as an older investor. Um, uh, 
and, and then you need, you know, you need to, and you also, listen, you have to take into account your whole, the whole portfolio. So real estate, you want all that other stuff. So it's a much broader conversation, but I guess the point is you shouldn't be, even at 60 or 70 years old, you shouldn't be afraid of the markets. You should just have the properly, uh, the, the properly laid out and qualified and diversified portfolio. Talk to me about unemployment. The unemployment seems to be low, but everybody keeps announcing layoffs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's confusing, exactly. isn't it? Because I'm confused. Yeah, so am I, by the way, because <laughs> I think those numbers are going to start to show up. Right. We've had a lot of late. Yeah, they have to start to show up unless these people are going out and getting new jobs right away, which they could because the job market is strong. There's a lot of job opportunities out there. So you could get laid off today and get another job tomorrow. And then you don't really show up in those. You don't show up in that data. Right. It's the people that are not going to get new jobs right away. That's going to start to or should start to show up in the data. And by the way, the Fed, in order for the Fed to be successful, they need to see the unemployment rate tick up. The longer employment stays at historic lows at 3.7 percent, that's another reason the Fed's not going to be so quick to cut rates. Right. They need to see it. And, and it'll be painful for some people. They need to see that number tick higher in order for them to uh, kill demand, once again, kill demand and bring prices down. So the longer unemployment stays at these historic lows, which on the one hand is great because everyone's working, but it doesn't help Jay's story. It doesn't help him craft a story to say, oh, great, I can cut rates down. doesn't really help him do that. But to your point, I think these, these layoff numbers are going to start to show up Unless all these people turn around, you know, they lose a job today, they get a job tomorrow right away. Right. Is it possible these numbers are skewed in that some of these companies may have offered packages and they can't apply for unemployment or stuff like that? Some took early for sure. retirement. For sure. Absolutely. And some of those people don't qualify. As, as dramatic as it looks like, you know, all these people getting laid off. A lot of that is true. A lot of these companies target certainly, uh, uh, you know, the upper end and they give them these retirement packages and they pay them out and they don't then they don't get on the rolls. That's part of it. But some of these companies that that are not doing that, they're just, you know, some of these younger companies that overhired during COVID or whatever. And they, now they realize they're not making it and they're just throwing people out. Those are the ones that should start to appear on the rolls. But you know what? The other thing that's very interesting is that there's a whole underground gig economy, really, in the world, in this country for sure, but in the world. You know, the gig economy where these people uh, aren't necessarily counted, right? They're just doing, you know, they're doing their side hustle, right? Um, uh, and so, and so they have to figure out a way to figure out really because I actually think the employment number. I think the, if you if you count all these people that have this side hustle going on, I actually think the unemployment number is even lower. Right. Wow. So, yeah, I, guess uh, it's like, are, so I think that's an issue. They're looking for jobs, they, but they're correct. making money somehow. Cor that's correct. Absolutely. Right. They're making money somewhere else. However, they, however, they're doing it. But they're, you know, this is the side hustle stuff. I mean, listen, places like, uh, you know, Upwork and Fiverr are those are those sites that you can go that people with experience, they put themselves out there. Who's a bookkeeper? Who's a, a web designer? Who's this? Who's that? And then they have they, they throw little businesses. You can call them up. I need a website design. You hire some kid. You pay him whatever it is, five, six, a thousand bucks, whatever the number is. You know, you're just Venmoing him. He's not on any payroll. There's none of that stuff to keep track of, which is what, you know, obviously also the Fed is trying to do. They're trying to get more control of that so that not only they can tax them, but they can they can try to uh uh uh, clarify the numbers. So let, let's talk about housing a little bit. The housing numbers came in, housing starts flat, I guess. But Fannie Mae comes out and says, oh, you know, 
mortgage rates went up this month and are at the highest they've been in the last two months or something like that. They're around 7%. Now, you and I, I, I my first mortgage was above 7%. Your first mortgage is probably way above 7%. Well, it was double. It was 15 and a half. So I'm, I'm thinking that 7%, 6.5%, could be more of the norm. Like you said, 2% was ridiculous. That's and, right. And the anomaly, whereas the 7% is the norm. I, you're absolutely right. And I think you're right. And people need to get used to that. And then, and so buyers need to get used to that, but sellers need to get used to that as well. So they think their house is worth 4 million in a 7% environment. It really isn't. And so the sellers also have to get used to, you know, but that's where prices will have to adjust. Right. And so um, you see that in existing homes. Uh, but what's interesting is, you, you know, existing homes actually ticked lower last month and new home sales actually ticked higher. Meanwhile, rates are still the same, right? Here's the difference. And, and, and I did it once so I know when you buy a brand new home from a builder, right? I bought the home I had in Armonk, I bought from Toll Brothers. It was a brand new home. I did it in 2000. But Toll Brothers was building a house. They could offer me upgrades if the, you know, the market was soft. They could offer upgrades for free, right? So upgrade your kitchen cabinets, upgrade the flooring, upgrade the tile. They also own the mortgage company. You finance it through Toll Brothers. And guess what else they could do? They can buy down the rate versus what the bank is going to give you on an existing home. So if the rates were seven and a quarter, seven and a half, then, you know, if, if depending on your own credit score, you might have been, you might have gotten a mortgage uh, with toll at, 6.8 or maybe 7%, which was a, a significant savings, right? And so what you'll see in new home sales numbers, you'll see those numbers continue to go higher because look, you know, once you walk into a brand new home and it's brand new and then they have it, you know, all decked out and decorated, you can see yourself living in there and your wife says, honey, that's the house I want. I don't want to look at, I don't want to get existing homes anymore because you walk into an existing home. It's typically an older home. You got to renovate it. You got to paint it. You got to change the bathroom. Yeah, all that crap. Right. Um, which is why you see the divergence between what existing homes are doing and what new homes are doing. Why they're, why one is going up and the other one is kind of going down. Yeah. Is there a psychology and I'll ask you to put on your psychologist hat because I know as a financial analyst and all that you're you're and you're talking to people all day about their money, you have to be a little bit of a psychologist and talk them off the ledge sometimes. Yeah. Is there uh the thinking that look, you know what, the interest rates are high, the economy must be great. Yeah, so that's a double-edged sword, right? The fact that rates are where they are does suggest the economy is strong, right? And so it's hard to it's hard then to make the argument that, you know, the rates need to come down because the economy is weak. The economy is not weak. And so you have to talk that that's where you have to talk to people. But look, the market and it's and that's actually been proving it as we're kissing all-time highs with rates where they are, the market can function with 5% rates. Absolutely can function with 5% rates. Right. The economy is good. Look what happened in the last earnings season that we just we just finished, you know, this this past week. These companies all reported strong numbers. Eighty two percent of them beat their estimates and offered very upbeat forward guidance for you know the next four and six months. And the truth is, as an investor, you don't really care what the earnings were because they're history. You really want to hear what the C-suite is saying about the next four to six months. Are they upbeat? Are they positive? What's it look like? What are the sales projections? Because that's, you're really buying stocks on what their the future value is going to be. You know, it's great they earn you know, $2 a share. Perfect. Great. But I want to know what they're going to earn next quarter or the quarter after that. And a lot of that is dependent on what they say, right? And so this last quarter, the fourth quarter of 2023, which we just got done with, um, was better than expected. 
right? The, the 80, 83% of the companies reported beats on the bottom and top line, and a lot of them were very positive going forward. Certainly uh, the tech space uh, and the AI space and anything AI, you know, uh, uh, was a boom for, for, for a lot of these companies. Um, and so I think uh, that the market is fine here, right? Do I, while it could pull back, I'm not necessarily worried, but this is what I talk to clients about because yes, you do. You suddenly have to talk off the edge. Look, here's a, here's a, here's a quick story. When in October, remember when the market backed off six or 7% by October 30th, we were down 6% or 9% on the NASDAQ, 6% the S&P. It was because they, they were, they were, they, the market was assuming that the Fed was not going to cut rates and they weren't even sure that they were done raising them. And so there was all this panic and blah, blah, blah. So I had a client call me up at the end of October after the market had already lost 6% and who owned all top quality names in the sectors we were in. I want out. I want out. He was an older guy, 66, 67 years old. I want out. I, want, I can't do this. I can't sleep at night. I, I'm nervous. I, I listen, calm down. You're good. You're good. You 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 don't. You're not using this money right now. It's got it invested. You know what we. I mean, I talked the whole story. No, in the end, I want out. Okay, it's your money. I'm I am your wealth manager, but I'm going to do what you tell me to do. You want out? You get out. I said, but I hope you're not making a mistake. Bang! He sells everything out. Guess when it was? October 28th or 29th, right at the low of October. Look at the chat in October. The next day. Uh, the narrative started to change. The Fed maybe was going to start to cut rates, and boom, the market went up 30%. The NASDAQ from October lows to, and the S&P went up 22%. And, and he's a good guy, but, he, but he's wounded now because he said to me, I should have listened. I, should, I hear you, but you know what I mean? Because the reason I was confident about that is because the fundamental story hadn't changed. Right. If the fundamental story had changed, I'd say, no, you're right. We should get out. But I, I was at, I was actually telling him he should buy more because the fundamental story hadn't changed. But he was so nervous. And OK, great. I, listen, I hear you. You want out. No problem. I'm going to take you out. It's not what I would do, but I'm going to take you out. And so uh, and we did. And he went into treasuries, which is fine because he's earning 5% in treasuries. So he's okay. He can sleep at night. He's not worried about it. He knows the money's there. And that's perfect. That's perfect. But yes, I spent a lot of time playing, you know, psychiatrists. As, by the way, as do a lot of wealth managers because people get nervous when they don't understand. And it's, it's perfectly legitimate. Is that what you would suggest to people who can't stomach the, the roller coaster ride or, 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 you know, riding it out is get into treasuries. You know exactly what you're getting. They're safe. Well, and you can. Yeah. Stay. Well, you can get into treasuries now because they're yielding 5% or 10 years are yielding 4.5%. And, you know, the, the, the shorter durations are yielding, you know, two years are yielding 4.7. The three and six month on an annualized basis are, are yielding 5.4%. So, yes, I would say you got to put you, you, it, it's It's stupid to have your money sitting there doing nothing. So, you have to have it do something. So if you don't want exposure to stocks, you should put it someplace and then treasuries is completely safe, right? Unless you're telling me the U.S. government's going to blow up, which I guess it could happen, but let's not go there. Um, yeah, then you would put your money in treasuries, which is exactly what this guy did. So, you know, he moved from he moved from his portfolio to treasuries. So he locked in, you know, four, I think we locked in 4.35%, but he was happy with that. Meanwhile, he missed the 30% move, right? <laughs> Oh, he missed he it. He didn't listen to and, you. <laughs> and, and he knows he missed it. And he said to me, I should have listened. I said, I hear you, but you know, you can only do what you can do, right? 
ultimately, the client, from my perspective, the client is the client. The client wants out, you're out, right? And, you know, we've heard this a lot lately, FOMO, fear of missing out. Is a lot of the market being driven by that? Look, we, we just went through earnings season, like you said. AI, anything AI was going nuts and people pouring right. money, pouring money, pouring in because right. they don't want to miss that ride. Right. And I think that's true. In that space, I think that's true. The fear of missing out. And and I mean, look at what happened to some of these names. SMCI, Super Microcomputer. It was a it was a $300 stock. Who'd ever heard of it? Not a lot of people. They came out with their earnings and they talked about AI in the next four to six months. The stock went from 350 to 700 almost overnight. Almost overnight. I think it took three or four days to go. It moved up 100%, right? Because, because it talked about AI. And anything, any stock that talked about AI in their earnings releases really was rewarded. And look, here's the other thing. You can get AI exposure in a range of sectors. You don't have to buy AI to get exposure. The bank, the financials, the financial sectors are using AI. Healthcare is using AI, right? They're all, all these sectors are using AI to help streamline their businesses and all that. But if you want to be in specifically AI, then yeah. So it's names like NVIDIA and AMD and SMCI and uh, ASML and Taiwan Semi and all that stuff. Yeah, those are the names. And what you saw was you saw this, 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 this crazy fear of missing out and money just piled in, right? Which is why, like I said, I'm no longer buying tech up here because I think it's, I think it's stretched. I own it. I didn't sell any of it, uh, but I fully expect that it's going to retreat. I hope it does because that'll give me a chance to buy more. So what do we read into Warren Buffett selling Apple stock? Yeah, he, 10 million shares is, is so, such a minuscule amount of what he owns. Right, but it's less than, listen to this, it's less than 1% of his Apple holding. So that's like pocket change. So you got to put it in perspective. Yeah, 10 million shares sounds like this big number. And it is. Multiply 10 million times, you know, $180. It's a big number. There's no doubt about it. But but it's but it, 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 the position was less than 1% of his total holding. So, so I don't think you read anything into that. It's not like he's changing his mind in Apple. Listen, if he sold 20% of his position, I'd say, okay, he's changing his mind. He sold, he sold less than 1%. It's like a house cleaning issue, right? He's just taking all the money he's getting from the dividends and redeploying it. Makes perfect sense. It's called investing. <laughs> so I don't think anybody should read into the idea that Warren Buffett sold 10 million shares of Apple. Don't do that. You know, don't it, do it. Just Warren Buffett, when it, whenever he sneezes, people are like, oh, what does this mean? So, I, you well, know. Well, because that's what they do. But but the fact is, if you really look at Warren Buffett's history, he's really a buyer and a buyer and a buyer, right? The only time he's, and by, by the way, notice when he sold the Apple. He didn't sell the Apple in October when it was going down. He sold the Apple in December and November and December on strength. He didn't sell into weakness. He sold on strength. He bought on weakness. When the, you know, not just Apple, but other things he did during that, during the meltdown, he's much more of a buyer. And he says it all the time, right? You're going to be, you're going to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So you want to be a buyer when people are, you know, jumping out the windows and you want to be a seller when they're coming after you, right? Which is exactly what he does. And that's a great mantra to live by. And that it's difficult for a lot of people to, you know, have that in their head to, you know, to feel comfortable because it can be very uncomfortable. You know, when you but but remember, you only lose money in the market if you actually make the sale. If you own it and you don't ever make the sale, okay, so today you might be down, I don't know, ten thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or two thousand, whatever the number is. 
Okay, but if you did that on Tuesday when the CPI came out and you panicked and you sold everything, and then by Thursday, we're back kissing the highs again. What did you do? Now you got this cash, you got to get back in. Now you're paying the highs. Like, do you understand what I mean? So it doesn't make sense. You have to get comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but if you can't, if you can't get there, then it makes sense for you to, you know, to do much safer things. So whether put your money in treasury, or put your money in CDs or someplace that's going to make you able to sleep at night and feel comfortable. Take the emotion out. Use your common sense. Right. Uh, basically. The one, right. One, yeah. Yeah. Well, last thing I'd love to touch on because you touched on it was oil and gold oil sitting around seventy five dollars. Obviously, OPEC wants it to be in the 80 range. Uh, you know, gas prices are I wouldn't say they're low, but they've obviously come down from where they were. What, what is oil at seventy five dollars a barrel? mean? So so here's what I think about oil. It's interesting because I said this in my note this morning. You know, there's a, a couple of conflicting data points. You got OPEC and the Energy Information Administration here in the, in the country that predict oil demand and growth is going to continue through 2050. You've got the IEA, which is the International Energy Administration, that came out today and they say that demand is going to wane through 2024 and into 2025, right? So you've got these conflicting forces. Now, uh, listen, I'm in the camp that demand is demand, that the world is going to continue to demand energy and oil, and we're not all going to EVs and battery-powered you know, cars and trucks and airplanes. Some of it, yes, but, I, but the demand for energy is going to remain, and so therefore I'm in the camp that oil goes higher. Now, look, we've become once again uh, almost a swing producer in the United States, right? We're pumping oil at rates that we were pumping when Trump was president, when we were the swing producer. Right. We're getting to that level again. OPEC, on the other hand, is trying to cut their production because they need to stabilize prices. Because remember, when we were the swing producer back in 2016, 2017, you remember oil was trading at 30, 40 dollars a barrel. Right. Today, you know, then it traded up to uh, in the high 80s, low 90s when 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 Biden came in. And now it's it's come back to the mid 70s. But now you got this conflict in the Mideast, which is going to provide a floor underneath, whether it's in the Red Sea, whether it's in uh, Israel, Gaza, whether it's in you know Iraq and Syria, that whole that whole area continues to uh, have conflict. And so that will provide a natural floor under oil prices just because of the tension. Right. If if that tension goes away, if we can clear up the, the Middle East situation, if we can try to bring some peace back, then you'll see that risk premium kind of fade. And then oil oil should come in a little bit. But look, the Saudis want to see oil $80 a barrel because that's where they're able to balance their budget. Below 80, they can't balance their budget and they hate when they can't balance their budget. So they're going to do anything they can to try to keep oil elevated. I actually think somewhere in here, I think oil stuck in the $75, $85 range. Um, and because I don't think the Mideast conflict is going away anytime soon, I think that's going to continue to hold it there. Um, but if we see if we see progress there, then you might see oil test lower against seventy dollars. Um, but I don't think it's going to go much below that. And I'm a buyer of energy. I'm a buyer of oil because I'm a buyer of energy. I do believe that demand is going to remain strong. Uh, and so having exposure to uh, uh, ex uh, oil exploration and services names and big oil names like Exxon and Chevron and stuff uh, are, are places where you sh where I should have exposure. And I do. Right. And I think most uh, most portfolios have uh, an exposure to energy. They should. If they don't, they should. 
Yeah, and gold this week has come down a little bit. It's hovering around the $2,000 range. So gold is higher. interesting because gold is a commodity. Oil is a commodity, but gold is another commodity. Is much more sensitive to what the dollar does, right? The dollar comes down in value. Gold typically goes up in value. Dollar goes up in value. Gold typically comes down in value. And so what we saw prior to Tuesday was gold was hovering in between this 2030, 2100 range, trying to figure out, okay, what's next? What's the Fed going to do? Because it felt like it wanted to take off, but there was this pressure sitting on it about the Fed. Well, when the CPI number came out on Tuesday, uh, and then again on Friday, and it became clear that the Fed was not going to cut rates, that meant that the dollar would still be, you know, with higher rates, the U.S. is an attractive investment for foreigners. They're going to come in and buy the dollar. And so that was going to put Upward pressure on the dollar. Upward pressure on the dollar puts downward pressure on gold. And so what we saw on Tuesday, the dollar spiked higher and gold got whacked, right? And traded down about 40 bucks right to the 2000 level where it found some support. It broke through all the trend lines. So 2000 is not a trend line support, but it, it's kind of a big round number. So that's kind of where it found support. Now it has since bounced off or it did anyway. Let me just see where it's trading right now as we're talking because it was and it was trading like 2000 and, 10 this morning uh, before the PPI number came out. And uh, so, yeah, so now it's still managing to, uh, it's actually up a little bit, it's up $6 because it's managing to think that gold, that they don't think rates are going up. They may not be coming down, but they're going to hold steady. And so that offers some clarity. So gold is kind of finding some stability. It's still below where it was. Um, and it'll probably remain below where it was until uh, until we get a move out of the Fed. And that may not happen until November. So gold might just be stuck right in this range for a while. Kenny, I know people can find you on Substack, and they can also get a great recipe. But uh, <laughs> you know, the, with, with each article you put out, you put out a good recipe. Can people find yeah. you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's just at Kenny Polcari. You can find me on my LinkedIn. You can find me on my YouTube channel, which is Kenny Polcari Media, all one word. Because there, I I do my uh, I take my written Substack note. And I actually turn it into a daily video. So in case you're in your car and you can't read, you want to listen to it, you can find it there. All right. Thank, Kenny, thanks so much for joining me. And if you haven't already, check out Kenny's Substack. I know you'll really enjoy it. That's a wrap on another discussion here on Wealthion. Thank you for joining us. If you need help being financially resilient, of course, please head over to Wealthion.com. Sign up for a free, no obligation consultation from one of our own vetted registered investment advisors. And remember, please, please follow us on social media for the latest news and information to help you invest wisely. Thank you for watching. And until next time, stay informed, stay empowered, and may your investments flourish. Thank you.